Yes, sir. Numbers 23, yeah. So I'm just putting my marker in there now. Those can go back in the, on the pew <clears throat> behind you there. Exactly. <laughs> I, got, I got a little too many. <laughs>
morning, everyone. Let's go over a couple of announcements if we can. We all know about the offering envelopes. Uh, we still have those, plenty of them in stock. Number five today is our communion service after our morning worship. We'll take a 10-minute break and then regather. And item six, uh, there will be no evening service tonight or next week. We will resume our studies on May 21st. Next week is Mother's Day, correct? That must be the reason. Okay, and don't forget... On the back of your bulletins, places to take notes and ink pens up front to, to scribble with. I feel a little bit compelled to go over a couple of other items here that's on the bulletin that maybe we don't pay enough attention to. Over on the left side of the page, it says our church praying. Uh, please pray for Pastor Luke. For mercy, keep her in your prayers. Pray for our country. Pray for unsaved loved ones. Pray for the sick in our congregation. Prayers for those grieving the Steele, Roth, McLeod, Gravington, Atwood, and Stiff families. Pray for Gary Luke, Pastor's brother. He has heart issues. And also for Della. Pray for Jared. His surgery will be on July 6th. Pray for recovery for Dale. He has at his surgery on his shoulder, but I think the week in Aruba may have gone a long way to help that. So, pray for recovery for Ed as he had cataract surgery. Pray for the Beetham family that lost their daughter and all of those grieving. It's it's quite a quite a list, though compact if we take the, the true time to keep this in our hearts and our minds. Yeah. Okay, please. I was going to write it down for you for this morning, but I forgot. Um, Charles, sorry, Jerry Rathka called me last night, and Charles spent Thursday night <coughs> mostly awake and not feeling well, and Friday morning he still wasn't feeling well, and Jerry told him to go lay down, and she said, he said, no, I can't lay down because it hurts my heart. So she took his blood pressure, and it was 190 over 103. So she said, you're going to the hospital. And so she took him to the hospital, and he has water, lots of water around his heart. And so they admitted him on Friday, and he was still there yesterday. She called me last night. She said, don't put it on the prayer chain. Just announce it in the morning. I said, okay. <laughs> so, um, but he'll be there for a couple more days, even though he's feeling better. He's still in the hospital. He wanted to come home yesterday, and his doctor said no. <laughs> so just keep them in your prayers. Um, Jerry's daughter, <clears throat> she's the one that's ferrying her because Jerry is 91 and, and Charles is 92, and they don't drive. So her daughter, who's on oxygen and not in good health, has been ferrying them back and forth, ferrying her back and forth. What's the daughter's name again? Do you remember? Carol. Carol. Oh, Carol. Yes, Let's add Carol to that list as well. Yes. Okay. Do we have any other uh, prayer, prayer requests or concerns that we can address? Mm -hmm. Terry? I had a phrase, uh, Pam sent me a text and said that they're having a wonderful time. It is her grandson that was in Africa was able to come home uh, on time and before the baby was born. Okay, that's the young man that's uh, in the military, in the Army? Her grace, her 
My grandson. Okay. Jacob, I think his name is. Yes. Okay. <coughs> Any other uh, uh, addendums or prayer requests that we can look for? Okay. If there are none, <coughs> scripture for meditation is a responsive reading from the book of Psalm. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 24, and that's page 829 in the Trinity. <coughs> when you come to that, please stand with us. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 24. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong, they walk in his ways. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Do good to your servant, and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. Remove from me scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight, they are my counselors. May the Lord add his blessing to this responsive reading.
Will you take your brown hymnal and turn to number 269, 269 in the brown? <coughs>
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Numbers, <clears throat> chapter 23, verses 13 through 26, and it'll be page 247 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand. Before we do that, uh, we have not opened in prayer yet, so I'm going to ask Brother George McLeod if he would lead us in opening prayer. <coughs> please stand with us. <coughs> Praise to your name, but even more so, Lord, we anticipate hearing your word proclaimed, and we pray that you would bless it to our hearts, bless it to our minds, and help us, Lord, that our souls would be quickened, and that they would enjoy and laugh and love your word. Father, we pray that you would bless our time together as we gather in your name. I repeat, Numbers 23, verses 13 through 26, page 247, in your pew Bible. Then Balak said to him, Come with me to another place where you can see them. You will see only a part, but not all of them. And from there, curse them for me. So he took him to the field of Zophim, on the top of Pisgah. And there he built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, Stay here beside your offering while I meet with him over there. The Lord met with Balaam and put a message in his mouth and said, Go back to Balak and give him this message. So he went back to him and found him standing beside his offering. But the princes of Moab, Balak asked him, What did the Lord say? Then he uttered this oracle. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob. No misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them.
God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no sorcery against Jacob, no divination against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. The people rise like a lioness. They rouse themselves like a lion. It does not rest till he devours his prey and drinks the blood of his victims. Then Balak said to Balaam, Neither curse them all at all, or nor bless them at all. Balaam answered, Did I not tell you I must do whatever the Lord says? Father in heaven, may you add your blessing this providential verse that hearts would be drawn to you, open, and there'd be an acceptance of Christ in their lives. In the name of Christ, amen. You take your brown, brown hymnals again and turn to number 251. 251 in the brown. familiar with this besides me? Okay, you know it? All right, then we'll just go and I'll just take it. Jerry, can you take it too? Of course you can.
Our text is Numbers 23. In our last study, we discover that while we have been entrusted with faith and have a stewardship from God to utilize it for his glory, to believe in God is hard work because there are impediments that attack our resolve. The arguments of the world sound so plausible so reasonable so agreeable to the way we think in the flesh that we sometimes buy into these and disbelieve God we must disbelieve God if we believe the arguments of the world because those arguments are 180 degrees opposite of the way God thinks. Can't have it. We cannot serve two masters, Jesus taught. We cannot serve two definitions of truth. Though we hesitate at times between God being reliable and the world being reliable. That's what I mean when I say faith is hard work. When our efforts for God fall flat. There are those times when we thought we were acting in compliance with the will of God. And we thought we were trusting Him. And then, bam! God lets us fall. disciples could not cast out the demon in the boy that the father brought to them because of pride and because they did not pray they did not fast in seeking God's will they second guess God oh of course God wants us to exercise this demon we can do this they discover that faith in God is hard work his doubts even when he finally got an audience with Jesus so he says to Jesus if you can help us The unbelieving disciples had taught him that. The failures of his disciples. We do the same. People let us down and so we think God will let us down too. We listed three resolutions to move us toward a trusting faith. Number one, 
resolve that the arguments of the world, though sometimes well-intentioned, are nonetheless godless counsel. I would really have a problem if I had some spiritual problems. I would have a problem going with a just a normal psychologist or something like that. Because the wisdom that they have is not of the scripture. And they're going to give me gobbledygook. They're going to give me, you can do it. You just need to do this. You just need to do that. Usually when you're depressed, you've done this and you've done that. And it hasn't helped one bit. And so you need to be counseled in the word of God. So resolve that the arguments of the world, though sometimes well-intentioned, are nonetheless godless counsel. They are. Secondly, resolve not to let another person down by failing to pray for him or her. When someone says, will you pray for this? Or you, you need to pray for that? And you hear about it and it comes out on the prayer chain on the prayer list. Do it. Do those prayers. Those, they're not just in there to take up room on the bulletin. They're in there because there's need. And we are saying, we can't solve it. Only God can solve it. If you don't pray about this, it ain't going to get solved. And I'm not knocking doctors and nurses. They're wonderful in their applications of their skills. But there are things that doctors can't do. That our God can Thirdly, we looked at the fact that we were to resolve not to attribute to Jesus the failures and inadequacies of his disciples. Don't do that. It is not true faith to believe that God can do the impossible. We must believe that he will do the impossible. That's where real faith comes in. Anybody can say, well, yeah, I believe God can do such and such. You believe that he will when you pray and ask him for intervention. That brings us to today's subject. We're going to talk about the promise-keeping God. There's this character, Balaam, in Scripture who's called a prophet. <laughs> I put it in my notes, prophet in quotes. Because he's a prophet for hire. The account of Balaam in the book of Numbers is a fascinating read because it brings before us a king and a prophet who joined hands to curse God's people as they came out of the desert towards the promised land. Israel had come out of Egypt, that bondage, through the providential miracles of God, you remember. They had worked their way through the Sinai Peninsula 
only to discover that there were hostile nations unwilling to let them pass through their land to reach Palestine. Well, what were they going to do? You can't come through our territory. These were established trade routes, but Israel was denied access. I think there's some prejudice going on here. More than that, these nations attack them. Arad, a king of the Canaanites, living in the Negev, chapter 21, verse 1 and following. The Amorites, ruled by Sihon and Og, chapter 21, verse 21 and following. So these nations were putting some... Um, some armor to their threats. You're not coming through this land. Oh, and if you try, we're going to attack you. And they did. Israel defeated them all. I love it. Little Israel. So when Balak, king of the Moabites, saw this, the Bible says Moab was terrified because there were so many people, that is the Israelites. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. Chapter 23 of Numbers, chapter 22, excuse me, verse 3. So Balak hatched a plan. He would send emissaries to a well-known divinatory, a prophet for hire, and pay him to curse Israel. That'll work. Then Israel, in a weakened, in a cursed state, would be easy prey for Balak's army to defeat. Numbers 22, verse 7 states, The elders of Moab and Midian left taking the fee for divination oh they're going to do this they got paid to it they're taking the money off they go they traveled to Balaam with the king's proposition Balaam was prohibited by God to curse Israel so he turned these emissaries away not to be undone Balak sent a second group with a better deal verse 17 I will reward you handsomely, he says. God permitted Balaam to go with his proviso. Go with them, but do only what I tell you. That's key. Chapter 22, verse 26. This Balaam is an interesting character. He seems to have been a prophet for hire for anyone whose price was right. And his concept of God, little g in parentheses, should not be read as one that accurately understood the difference between the God of the Bible and the gods of the pagan cultures. 
though Balaam himself asserted, chapter 22, verse 8, I will bring you back the answer Jehovah gives me. Jehovah is that special name for the Lord, for Israel. He's using the covenant name for God, which only the Israelites understood, by the way. Moses the writer corrects him saying, verse 9, God came to Balaam, God, Elohim, God in the plural, different word, the triune God, yes, but also for the gods of the nations, meaning their idols. So Moses, through this subtlety in the text, was saying, Balaam, you may claim to be a prophet of Jehovah, the covenant God of Israel, but you are nothing more than a prophet of the false gods of the nations. The God of Israel has come to you. He has spoken to you, but it is by way of correction. It's by way of restraint. and not in approval of the bribe you took to curse his people. But Balaam was a pagan. As such, he was willing to use his occult powers to do anything for a price. For a price. By the way, there is a non-biblical prophecy of Balaam, non-biblical, in Aramaic, preserved in a text in Deir Allah in the Jordan Valley, dating to one to seven hundred BC. And I see him much like Simon Magnus in Acts eight, of whom Luke writes, Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria, he boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. Greek here. Magia, from which we get the word magic. But because we think of magic as tricks or illusions, when we hear this, you know, the Houdinis, the David Copperfields, magic arts really refers to sorceries. That's a better translation because Luke is talking about occult or demonic supernatural powers which ignorant people believe are of God. By the way, those, those powers and abilities are going to escalate in the end times. Where are we living? In the end times. So when we have people claiming to be able to heal the sick and speak in tongues and 
do the miraculous and so on and so on, the red flag should go up. And we should be very cautious. Numbers 22 verse 7 tells us, the elders from Moab took the fee for divination with them and then they went to Balaam. By his own confession, when Balaam explained to Balak why he could not curse Israel as he had been paid to do, Balaam said in 23.23, there's no sorcery against Jacob, no divination against Israel. And in 24 verse 1, we read, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to sorcery as at other times. But he turned his face towards the desert. It's Oracle 3. And he was Satan's prophet, not God's prophet, though God used him. God can even use the, the devil's <laughs> infested so-called holy men to accomplish his will. Secondly, he gave true words in the mouth of a liar. Did you know God can do things like that? I think it is self-evident that Balaam went with the emissaries of King Balak because he had every intention of carrying out the king's wishes. This is why his own donkey ran him off the road three times and was summarily beaten by Balaam for being incorrigible. Chapter 22, verse 21 and following. The donkey had more sense than he did. Verse 22 of 22 says, God was very angry when he went. How can that be when in verse 20 God said, Go with them. But that's not what verse 20 says. Rather, go with them, but do only what I tell you. That's what God said. God read Balaam's heart and saw that he had no intention of speaking only what God would tell him to speak. He was paid to curse Israel, and he was going to curse Israel. The angel of the Lord stood to oppose him on the road, and the donkey saw and feared what Balaam did not. Peter, in speaking of the false teachers who are to come in the end days, described them this way. They have left the straight way, and they have wandered to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Second Peter 2, verse 15 and 16. Can God do that? He can. 
And by the way, it really is madness to think that one can go against the express will of God and get away with it. Well, boy, he was going to try. Balaam confessed his sin in chapter 22, verse 34, but only after God threatened him. Verse 33. The donkey saw him and turned away from me these three times. And if he had not turned away, this is God speaking, if he had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now. But I would have spared her, the donkey. Ah, then, the reason we see Balaam very careful to prophesy to Israel only what God says to prophesy in chapter 23 is not because Balaam is a true prophet of Jehovah and is compelled by his faith to prophesy the truth, but because God had pledged to kill him if he says steps out of line as he was secretly planning to do. But God could read his heart. Now we might ask, what has this got to do with the promise-keeping God? Well, just this. When a liar tells the truth, the truth he tells is extremely compelling because if it were left to him, he would lie through his teeth and not even give it a second thought. He would speak his lies, collect his gold, right off into the sunset, chuckling inside that his deception had made him rich. Balaam was a liar by nature. But God had warned him on threat of his own life that Balaam was not to misrepresent Jehovah like he was prone to do when speaking for the pagan gods. No, he was to speak what I tell you. Chapter 22, verse 29. And this is precisely why Balaam, this is why what he primarily did. And Balak, the king, oh, oh, he went ballistic. This is not what I paid Balaam to do. You're to curse Israel, not bless them. And I paid you to do that. And at the failure of every attempt to curse Israel, Balak's fury escalated. But each time, Balaam's answer was, here it is, must I not speak what the Lord, what Jehovah puts in my mouth? 23 verse 12, verse 26 Chapter 24, verse 13, 
He keeps coming back. I can't do it. I have to speak what the Lord has me to speak. Now, this is not the confession of a truly repentant man. But the realization that when he speaks for Jehovah, God and lies do not go together. And if he tried to force the issue and lie anyway by cursing Israel in God's name, a death sentence awaited him. That's pretty serious. Isn't that interesting? God was saying, just tell the truth and live. I'm not asking you to lie for me or about me. I want you to tell the truth, for it is as Jesus taught the people of his day, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, verse 20, verse 32. Lies do not liberate. Instead, they enslave. They cause people to bank on what is false and commit themselves to deception. Here then, Balaam's words from God in verse 19 and 20. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? I have received a command to bless he has blessed and I cannot change it. Wow. Get the principle here. God is not a liar like men so there's no need for him to lie. You ever ask yourself why? Why do men lie? Well, many reasons. To cover up sin. God has no sin to cover up. Men lie to trick people into believing a deceitful statement in order to get their way. God always gets his way. He need not trick anyone to accomplish his will. So there's no lying on his part. Men lie to salve their guilt and shame. God has no guilt. He has no shame because his conduct is always pure and holy. Men lie to take back something they promise that now they cannot fulfill. God is not impotent to do all that he has promised. No one thwarts his will. No one defies his will. No one gets around his will. He does as he pleases every time. 
all the time without fail. God is not a liar like men. That brings us to the subject, the will of God to keep his promises. Remember the tension in faith. Keep our dilemma in view, namely that while we have faith that God can keep his promises, we do not always believe that he will. That's the tension. Through Balaam, God told King Balak, God is not a man that he should lie, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? Verse 19. And the answer is never. Never. This is the heart of the issue, isn't it? I do not think that any true believer would ever accuse God of lying or of saying things he did not mean, but that is not how we phrase our doubts. We phrase our doubts by saying things like, the Bible says when we pray, we should pray for things in accordance with God's will. I prayed for such and such, but God did not answer me. So, I guess what I prayed for was not God's will. Yet secretly, we may be thinking, the thing I asked for is in the Bible. So God did not keep his word to me. We seldom go the route James tells us to take. You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James 1, verse 3 and 4. James tells us here that our faith has to be tested in order for perseverance to reach maturity. Perseverance means not giving up. But we do give up. Our faith crumbles at the first test that comes along. The test may be God saying, no. Or it might be God saying, wait. Or God might be saying, not that, but something better. But if it crosses our will, we're ready to blame God for not keeping his word. But there's more here. James goes on to lay the blame at a place we are reluctant to consider. The goal of God testing our faith is maturity and completeness so that we lack nothing. Oh. We know 
if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him or her. Meditate here just a minute. James is talking about our prayer life, and he's saying that if we lack something, we should ask God for it, and it will be given. And he lists wisdom. We have a lot of Bible verses that tell us that God is the source of all wisdom and that encourage us to seek wisdom from him. Solomon, the king most notably praised and blessed with wisdom to answer his prayer, told his sons, let me read it for you. And if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 2, verse 3 and following. Daniel's contemporaries were stumped by the vision of the king, which he demanded his wise men interpret on threat of execution if they failed. You remember that story. We read, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings. He deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Daniel 2, 19 and 5. That's the source of this. And who can forget Jesus' sweeping promise? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he'll give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Matthew 7, verse 7 and following. So Jesus says, Ask, seek, knock. Without specifying any particular thing other than the truth that God only gives good gifts to his children. James uses the example of wisdom, which all of us need, but more importantly, what God has promised to those who seek it. We have in this request then a promise made to us by God. So far, so good. We know how that if we ask God for wisdom on any given matter, we have asked for something that is definitely in accord with His will. Since He commends wisdom to us, we're certainly not being presumptuous to seek it from Him. But we cannot stop there because this is only half the story. 
Yes, wisdom is an approved prayer request from God. Yes, God is the source of wisdom and the only place to obtain it. Yes, God will not scold anyone for asking for wisdom. And yes, God has promised to be generous in dispensing his wisdom to those who ask. Good, 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 all good. But notice James' footnote, verse 6. But when he asks, you, as you're praying, when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave on the sea, blown and tossed by the wind, and the man, that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, and he's unstable in all he does. Oh. So it's not just asking God and asking God. It's asking and believing that he will give what you request. You say, oh, now wait a minute here. If wisdom is a prayer request in keeping with the will of God and we pray for God to give it, you mean God will not give it? Well, not if your prayer is devoid of the faith that believes he will keep his promises. Not if your faith is mixed with doubt. Not if your faith is wavering between I know he will and I hope he will. Not if you fail the test. What's the test? Verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him he will also receive the wisdom he asked for or the health he asked for or the forgiveness he asked for or the salvation of his children that he asked for dozens of things he asked for all of which are God sanctioned requests but answered by God only to those who in faith have not given up on God just because the answer didn't come overnight or instantly. Where's the perseverance in prayers of faith like that? Let me give you three elements to the prayer of faith, all of which must be present if we expect positive answers. Number one, your request has to be something God approved. Don't expect God to answer requests to gratify your own sinful desires. James says in chapter 4 that the first problem is that we do not ask God but then he's quick to add, when you ask, you do not receive because 
you ask with wrong motives. Ooh. That you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. James 4, verse 3. That's interesting. We're praying that God will enrich us, that he will please us, that he will satisfy our desires. Secondly, your request has to be made to God in faith, believing that he will grant it to you. Doubts are like, <laughs> they're like throwing water on hot coals. Creates a lot of steam, but it dampens the fire. God refuses to help people who doubt his integrity to keep his word or his ability, who think this is impossible. All the while, they are asking that means they're going through prayer motions but not faith. Thirdly, you have to pass the test of perseverance. Maturity comes no other way. If you pray once and give up, you failed the test. Now, it isn't that God cannot answer your first prayer, but depending upon God is not instilled in people who think that all they have to do is snap their fingers and God will jump. The only thing that would build in us is presumption. The notion that God exists for us rather than we for him. Our prayer of faith must allow for such things as timing. God may delay his answer to keep us hoping, looking. We need to allow for the possibility that what we prayed for may be an approved request sanctioned by the word of God, but specifically not the will of God for us. For example, Paul knew that praying for healing was certainly a legitimate request. He had practiced it in his own ministry. He had saw, seen it in the ministry of the other apostles. He had prayed many times for the infirm, and God answered every prayer. But one day, the Lord sent a thorn into Paul's own personal life and he prayed about this once no answer he prayed about it again requesting that God remove this impediment from him because in his own mind that thorn was hindering his ability to minister effectively again no answer He prayed a third time. Notice his perseverance here. He prayed a third time, and this time 
he got his answer. He tells us, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That was God saying, No, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to give something else. I'm going to give you the power and the persistence to endure this weakness that you have. So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8 and 9. God left Paul weak instead of healing him. Why? Because in Paul's case, God did not want the apostle to get a swelled head because of all the revelations God had given to him and because God wanted it clearly known that Paul was who he was and able to do what he did because of God's power in his life, not his own strength. The prayer of faith has to be open to this. You cannot pray dictating to God what he must do. Even if you found the prayer request plainly taught in the Bible. That's what's wrong with the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers on TV. They observe particularly gifted people in the Bible, wealthy Abraham or healthy Moses, who never seem to age, and they generalize saying, See, God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be healthy and prosperous in all of your endeavors. There's no allowance for God's specific will for a person. What he gives to one, he's not promised to give to the other. To all. And jealousy can destroy a believing faith. God is not obligated to treat us all the same, but just to treat us fairly and righteously. However best, we'll glorify himself and do you good. And he gets the glory. This whole idea of looking in the scripture and finding a prayer request that God answered and then pigeonholing that and say, see, I can pray for that same problem and God is going to heal me or he's going to give me the money I need or he's going to save my son or daughter. You have no guarantees of that. God is still God. And you ain't him. You ain't him. Now we have examples of God keeping his promises. Hebrews 11 is the by faith chapter. You know it. So I have to be selective here. Let, let me pick out a few. God has promised many times over in the Bible 
that he will bless those who keep his commands and live righteously before him. Verse 5 states, By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He couldn't be found because God took him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Hebrews 11, verse 5, verse 6. Enoch is one of only two people who never died. Elijah being the other. But the remarkable thing is that Enoch's righteous life was lived in the days before the judgment of Noah's flood. Why judgment? The Lord saw how great men's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Genesis 6 verse 5. Enoch walked with God in holiness at one of the most decadent, immoral, and wicked times of human history. Faith to stand against the tide of human depravity was something he did and he was rewarded. God just took him. Noah built his ark. Why? Verse 7. Being warned about things not yet seen. Wait, what things? Well, things like no rain. Genesis 2 verse 6 says that up until the flood, the earth was watered with a mist rising from the ground. So there had never been floods. There had been no judgments from God. By his faith, Noah condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. He believed judgment was coming while the world mocked and made fun of him. The building of the ark was his faith in action, believing God's threats to be real, and the flood came. Abraham and Sarah. He 99, she 90. We're both far too old to produce children biologically. But we are told by faith, even though Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, by faith he was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Hebrews 11, verse 11. Again, Abraham's faith was challenged by God when God commanded him to take that child of his old age and sacrifice Isaac on an altar and we read by faith Abraham when God tested him offered Isaac as a sacrifice he who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son even though God had said to him it is through Isaac that you are your offspring will be counted Hebrews 11 
Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Genesis 22, verse 12. Abraham so believed the promise of God that through Isaac the nation of Israel would come that even if he had slain Isaac, God would raise him to life again to fulfill his promise. And that pleased God. Moses' parents defied Pharaoh's edict, which commanded that all Hebrew children, male and gender, be thrown into the Nile. Why? Because in the Nile, it was full of crocodiles. They'd snap those kids up like nothing. I was watching them. I guess it was a kind of a documentary on the Nature Channel. And they were advertising, or not advertising, but they were describing these crocs that are in a certain part in the Amazon. They're huge. They're 25, 30 feet long. They have jaws that open and can chomp down on a full man. 25, 30 feet, that's from the back door of our sanctuary to this table up there. How'd you like to meet that in the water? That's the Nile. That's the Amazon. They're called saltwater crabs. They're bigger than freshwater. But Moses' parents defied Pharaoh's edict, which commanded that all Hebrew children, male children, be thrown into the Nile. We read by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. See, that's faith. Verse 23. They didn't do what they did because they were afraid. They were not afraid. But neither were they going to submit to the king's edict, which they knew to be immoral. Not killing our son. Not making him fish food. And Egypt at this time was a land enforcing infanticide of Hebrew children, discriminating, and murder. China today has a compulsory abortion law directed towards female babies. Female babies. 
What will you do when government steps in and tells you how many children you may have and what must be done if you exceed the limit? Moses' parents had faith to live in obedience to God. Jacob and Joseph had dying faith. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worship as he leaned on the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instruction about his bones. Verse 21, verse 22. These people lived their lives believing not simply that God could keep his promises, but that he would keep his promises. Faith for the impossible. Like the Red Sea cross. The faith of Rahab. That believed even, even a prostitute like her could be forgiven and saved by God. Humanity has not changed. The world is still a godless, evil place. People live their lives oblivious to the judgment that is coming. They knuckle under to government regulations which usurp parental authority. They trust only logic and what is reasonable, but the impossible is mocked, and anyone who believes in God is mocked. There's no concept that God, the God of the impossible, rules in the earth below and in the heavens above. And when they die, they will meet him and mourn for their stupidity and for their unbelief. Will it be any better for you? God's promise is this. Let me read it for you. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Let him turn to our God for he will freely pardon. Isaiah 55, verse 7. Come to Christ today. If you believe it, discover for yourself the integrity of our promise keeping God. He said it. He promised it. He will do it. And our hope and our security is found only not in the promises of men who are liars but in the promise of God, the scripture says, who cannot lie. Who cannot lie.
Our Lord, we thank you <coughs> for your wonderful promises. We thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. And though some of the promises look far-fetched, certainly to the people of the world, they're not used to trusting you for anything. They're just manipulators. They're the ones that rely on their own wisdom, their own prowess, their own abilities. They have no time for God. They go to no church. They do no prayers. They read no Bible. They just live. And they live for self. But all of that's going to come crashing in on them in the day of judgment. Because God has given enough witness of your reality to this careless world. Everywhere we see the hand of God at work. If in fact we just open our eyes. But instead, we have things like evolution that says, well, that's how we came to be. It's talk about something so unscientific, so against reality. We talk about ages and the millions, millions and millions of years. When the fossil record in our own rocks and hills and mountains indicates that the earth is only thousands of years old, not millions of years old. If we had a mind to believe the real evidence, we could figure this out. Thank you for the Christian scientists who are working on these things. Our faith is emboldened, and we are encouraged. We're not stupid people. We're trusting in the God of Scripture, whose wisdom personified everywhere we love. Thank you, dear Lord, for granting us your wisdom. Bless us as we seek your face. Bring us into the safe harbor of your kingdom in your good time. Amen. Our closing hymn is 271 in the hymnal. going to take a short break and then regather for our communion. Jared's going to lead that for us. Standing on the Promises. Don't you think this is a great hymn? And it goes along with the sermon so well, that's why I chose it. We have to stand on the promises of God. 